Well, good evening and welcome to our live stream. I'm so glad that you're tuning in this evening, wherever you are. I would encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Philippians. We're going to start in chapter 3. I'll read the first three verses and then we'll get deeper into the chapter in just a little bit. But starting with the first three verses, and Paul here says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now notice the three times that Paul uses the word beware in just a short verse number two. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We all know that the overarching theme of the entire book of Philippians is rejoice. But you have to get all the way to the third chapter until we hear a phrase that we are all so familiar with. Rejoice in the Lord. This is the first time that he adds in the Lord to the word rejoice. The type of rejoicing that Paul is speaking here is totally related to the events that are going on in our life and the circumstances of our life. It's an unchanging relationship that we could have in Christ and have with our sovereign God. Paul obviously cares very deeply for the body of believers that are in Philippi, and he wants to help them. He wants to keep them safe from Satan. Paul is full on shepherd mode. He's not only feeding this church true doctrine and the ways of the Lord, but he is also trying to protect them the best way that he can. And in verse 2, he starts off by saying, beware of dogs. Does a beware of dogs sign that you see somewhere get your attention like it does mine? I have found myself at a home delivering a cake sometimes for someone who has visited church. And I knock on the door or ring the doorbell, take a couple of steps back, and then I see the sign, beware of dog. And that's when I immediately start looking around, wondering, is a dog going to come out from the bushes or from tearing from around the corner? And Paul here is saying, beware of dogs. He wants to get their attention. Now, during Paul's day, dogs were not the domesticated animals that we know and that we love today. Dogs are extremely domesticated today. While they're not human, they many times become a part of the family. It's not unusual for a family to throw a birthday party for a dog. Dogs get lots of attention. Dogs go to spas and get cleaned up and then come home. That's not how dogs were treated at all during Paul's day. They roamed the streets. Dogs were looked at as being a hazard and being a nuisance. And because dogs were filthy, the Jews, taking the high moral ground, so they thought, would look at everyone else who was not Jews, or they would look at the Gentiles as being dogs. But get this, here in this passage, Paul is calling the Jews dogs. 
And in doing that, he's describing their rituals, the fake rituals that they're doing, their uncontrolled character. And he is saying, yeah, the Jews call the Gentiles dogs, but in truth, the way that they treat scripture and the way that they treat Christ and their whole approach to religion and worship, they are the ones that are dogs. And then Paul Paul goes on in verse number two, beware of evil workers. These were the Judaizers who prided themselves in being the workers of righteousness and they themselves setting the standard of what righteousness should look like. And in doing so, they drew all the attention away from Christ's accomplished work and instead added work to it. Paul tells them to put no confidence in the flesh. So all of the works that they are adding to righteousness and taking away from the completed work we have in Christ, Paul says, don't put confidence in that. In verse number three, let me read that. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That confidence in the flesh is any type of righteous works that we could try to do to gain a better standing in the eyes of God. And Paul is saying, that work is totally accomplished in Christ. And the Judaizers are trying to add to that. The Paul's, or the Jews placed their confidence in being circumcised. They placed their confidence in being descendants of Abraham and took great pride in that. They also placed their confidence in any of the external ceremonies. All of these were works of the flesh. And Paul says, have no part of that. Beware of that. It is the Jews that are dogs. It is the Jews that are the evil workers for corrupting the way of Christ the way that they are. And in these first three verses, Paul is presenting five qualities of what a true believer looks like. He says, well, a true believer rejoices in the Lord. A true believer exercises discernment. A true believer worships God with the right spirit. A true believer glorifies Christ Jesus. And a true believer puts no confidence in the flesh. And Paul carries on in verse number four with that same theme. Let's look at it. Philippians 3 verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man or other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul keeps adding it on. He goes on in in Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So if anyone had a legitimate right to justify himself before God as far as works in the flesh, Paul is saying here, saying, I was that man. And he gave proofs of his commitment to the law. So he's laying down some history here. And he's saying, number one, I was circumcised the eighth day. 
He mentions this first because the Judaizers were demanding this of the Philippians. And the strange thing here is Paul knew that some of the false teachers, they themselves had not even been circumcised. And Paul said, on the eighth day, I was circumcised. And he goes on and he says, I was the stock of Israel. He's saying, I could trace my heritage, trace my roots all the way back to the patriarchs. He's saying, I'm not a convert into this. I was born into it. And he says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was where the very first king of Israel came from, Saul. And to be a Benjamite was truly to be an Israelite. And Paul goes on, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, if ever there was a poster child for what a Hebrew should look like, it was me. I was born to Hebrew parents. He said, I spoke the language. I lived the customs. I lived under, or I learned under the best teacher, Gamaliel, in all of the land. When we cross-reference with the book of Acts, which Paul also wrote, there in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Sicilia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, and as ye all are this day. Paul could boast of his ancestry, but he could also boast not only of that, but also of his orthodoxy and his commitment to the Jewish religion. And he starts off with saying, I was a Pharisee. And Paul is saying for him, being a Pharisee was not necessarily a negative experience. Because the Pharisees represented some of the noblest traditions of the Hebrew people. But false teachers claimed righteousness by means of the self-effort. And he is saying, look, in everything that you are doing, you don't even measure up to what I was as a Jew. I was a Pharisee. He goes on and he describes his zeal here in verse 6. Concerning zeal, if you want to measure my zeal, he says, okay, so if you want to go ahead and see just how zealous I was for God, let's look at persecuting the church. The word persecute here is used in the present tense. So it's not something that was like an occasional activity for Paul's life, but rather it was back when I was persecuting the church, it was what I lived and I breathed. It wasn't a passing fad. It wasn't something I did for a month, but it was the present activity, you know, the present thoughts of my mind. When I got up, I wanted to persecute the church. That's how great my zeal was. He believed that killing church killing Christians in the church was a noble service to the Lord. So he's saying, I was a Pharisee. I was a persecutor of the church. And he says, when it comes to the law, I was absolutely blameless. Now, he's not saying here I was sinless. But what he is saying is the way that I did things and the way that I did lived life as a Pharisee and a persecutor, there was no double standard. I was not a hypocrite. 
He kept all of the rules so meticulously that no one could point a finger at him and say, ha, you don't mean really what you're doing. He meant it 100%. And before Paul could come to God, he had to turn his back on all of these things and trust only in Christ. And that was what he was longing for all of the Jews, all of the Judaizers, all of the false teachers. While he was warning the church of them, his true desire was that, was that they would turn to God just like he did. It wasn't about a set of rituals and it wasn't the works. All of that necessary that was necessary for salvation, Christ accomplished on the cross. He goes to verse 7 in chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. When Paul uses the word gain, but what things were gain to me, he's using an accounting word here. And the accounting word here means profit. It's what would go into the plus column. It's the, the black, not the red ink that is used in accounting. And the word loss here means a detriment or actual damage. So he's saying what things were profit for me or what I thought was so good and profited to me religiously were actually damaging for the things of Christ. For Christ, they were a detriment. All of his Jewish religious credentials that he thought were in the profit column were actually worthless. The things he took great pride in, in his accomplishment, in his heritage, and how he lived a life, were actually damaging the true work of Christ. And he came to the point and realized, I need to trust in God and God alone. Nothing but the righteousness that is in Christ remained on the asset side of Paul's balance sheet. He goes on in verse number eight. Read with me. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge. Hang on to that word knowledge with me just for a moment. Knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. One of Paul's continuing goals was to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he uses the word knowledge, what, what he means is, I want to know him personally. It's much more than just being acquainted with someone or having knowledge of someone or knowing their history, knowing things about them. Paul's saying, that's not the knowledge I want. He said, I want the knowledge that personally knows Jesus Christ. It's the equivalent of living a shared life with Christ. This knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. God just doesn't want us to know all of the things about him in the Bible. It's not a matter if we know all of the answers to all of the trivia questions or any of the questions that anyone might ask about the Bible and how much details can we recount. God is more interested in us knowing him personally. Our faith is not a one of systems and regulations and rituals. Our faith is personal. It's intimate. 
We know the person who has changed our life. The Holy Spirit lives within us, and we have obtained that upon salvation. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by the baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. As believers, we have known the power of Christ's resurrection in the past, because at the moment of conversion, we ourselves were raised to new life. We were born again. And because of the resurrection, everything in Paul's world was transvalued. And what I mean by that, it was re-evalued in his life. Like an accountant would look at his sheets and everything that he thought was in the profit column and it was good and he took great pride in, actually was a detriment. And he says, I had to re-evaluate my whole life. And even as Christians, there's times where it's very good for us to just sit down and reevaluate our values and our things in life that we prioritize and sincerely seek God and ask him, Lord, am I spending time where I need to spend it? Am I valuing the things that you value? Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, here Paul goes on. And he says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, that's a very affectionate term that he's using here. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind, in reaching forth unto those which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Here Paul is kind of changing his terminology a little bit. Before he was talking as an accountant and a prophet in a lost way. Now he is speaking more like an athlete. He's running a race that he has not yet finished. Paul is saying that as much as he has already accomplished in life, he's not finished. He feels pressed to keep running. Others and some of his converts imagined that they had already obtained perfection and were finished with their race. And Paul is saying, it doesn't matter how much I accomplish down here. It doesn't matter what cycle of life I am in. I need to continue to press forward. If an athlete cannot concentrate, if he cannot keep himself focused, he will not be able to compete at the level that he needs to. An athlete needs to be in the zone. He doesn't hear the crowd and the noise that come in. He doesn't feel the pain and the ache or the soreness perhaps from an injury. And Paul is saying this kind of concentration is a requirement for Christians who would gain Christ. In verse 13, he says, forgetting those things which are behind. And Paul isn't saying, don't remember any of your past. 
Just do a complete mind wipe and just move forward. Don't remember your past. He's talking more of having a selective type of forgetfulness here. He's saying if we allow our past failures to fill us with despair and depression or maybe even with defeat, then we must forget them. But if we look at our past failures as opportunities to learn and to grow and to incorporate into our testimony to help others, then it's all right to remember those. And this, were, this is where Satan really tries to enter, enter the picture when it comes to our past. He wants us to remember the past and cause us to despair and have us think that we can't have as bright of a future as we need because of our past. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Remember the past and remember how God gave victory in the past. Take the past, learn from it, and press forward. But we must also do the thing with our successes. If our successes cause us to be arrogant or to be proud, then we must forget those successes. However, we would benefit from remembering them if they make us grateful. And we recall that it is God who has allowed us to have those successes. Winston Churchill, I read, took three years just to get through the eighth grade. I'm guessing on that third year, he was probably the tallest eighth grader. He had trouble learning English, and because he had trouble with learning English, it just set him back each year. But in an ironic kind of twist, years later, in the midst of the raging of World War II, Oxford University asked him as prime minister to come and deliver the commencement address. He accepted, and on the day of, he dressed in his finest suit and arrived at the auditorium where the exercises were going to happen. He had his usual props of a cane and a top hat. And as Churchill approached the podium... The crowd in unison stood up and started applauding, grateful that he was there, but also grateful for his leadership. Standing there, looking very dignified, he scanned the crowd and eventually came to the point where he settled the crowd down and had them take a seat. And standing before them, he remained quiet. He removed his hat he set down his cane, and he just stared at the audience. Out there were some of the most notable scholars in the world. And with an authoritative tone, he spoke three words to begin his speech. And he said, never give up. He let some seconds pass. And it got to the point where the silence was very loud. All eyes were on him. And then he repeated the same phrase again, the same three words, never give up. He let a few seconds pass. And then he grabbed his top hat. He put it on. 
He grabbed his cane. He walked away from the podium and left the stage. His address for that commencement exercise was finished. And his message was heard not just that day, but is still even heard today. Never give up. And Paul here is speaking to the church at Philippi. And he's saying, look, I know that there are real enemies out there. I know there are people who would do you harm and there is false doctrine out there. But continue to press forward no matter where you are at. And he uses himself as an example. I am going to continue to press forward. My race is not done. As I look back and I see some successes, after all, Paul here is writing a functioning, fully autonomous church. He's saying, I have seen my successes, but I'm not going to be arrogant or proudful about that. My work here is not done. And it doesn't matter where in life we are. We have work to continue to do. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. We have to continue to run the race. And the Apostle Paul knew the importance of never giving up. And he uses life as an example. And he is encouraging the church, press toward the mark. What is the mark? The mark is the finish line. What is the finish line? The finish line is when the Lord either calls us home or he blows a trumpet and we join him in the air. If we're still here, that means God is not done with us. We have a work to do and it is a wonderful work. And I'll start or I'll end where I started. And while we work and while we press forward, we can rejoice because our rejoicing is in the Lord and the great work that he has done in in our life and the great work that he wants to do through us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week. <music>